software developers succeed by combining technical ability, communication skills, and well-reasoned philosophies in order to craft information systems. Where this podcast focuses on information systems, Developer on Fire focuses on the engineers who build those systems. Dave Rail started his podcast as a way to overcome fear and access an entrepreneurial side of himself. In his interviews with prominent engineers, Dave identifies patterns and strategies that have enabled his guests to succeed. He also finds the human side, namely the fallibilities and the failures of legendary developers, and this makes it easier to imagine ourselves accomplishing the feats of his developer guests. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dave Rail, and if you like Software Engineering Daily, you will also like Developer on Fire, and I hope you check out that podcast. Dave Rail is the host of Developer on Fire. Dave, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thanks very much, Jeff. Glad to be here. So Developer on Fire is a podcast where you interview developers about their stories and what I think is differentiating about Developer on Fire is that the focus is on who the guest is. And on most software engineering podcasts, the guest is appearing to talk about the technology that they are an expert in. Your show is more about the human element. Why did you take that approach? Well, you nailed it right on the head. That's exactly what I intend is that, you know, I've heard a lot of developer podcasts, obviously. I'm, I'm very much a consumer in addition to being a creator. And, you know, when I decided that I wanted to create a podcast, I didn't want to be just another guy doing the same thing as everybody else. And it took a long time before I finally landed on that uh, featuring developers rather than development topics was was the thing for me. It was it was kind of, uh, it, it was an accident that I started stumbled on the idea, I heard a, a podcast, an entrepreneur podcast, which uh, I'm, I'm not really, well, I'm tr I guess I'm trying to become a, an entrepreneur, much, much like you have uh, become with, with, uh, with SE, SE Daily, right? But, um, you know, I, I didn't really intend to be an entrepreneur. I just stumbled across uh, an entrepreneur podcast called Entrepreneur on Fire, right? Uh, very creative in my title, like, you know, coming from that. But I, I you know, I, I heard that podcast. I heard a developer uh, on that podcast. Well, I heard this developer, Trevor Page, on another podcast and he became this entrepreneur with selling his I will teach you Java uh, programming things and when I heard this guy I was just like he's great I want to find out more about him and when I googled his name the first thing that came up was entrepreneur on fire so I listened to his interview on that show and then you know on the website I noticed hey Tim Ferriss and some other names that I recognized and so I listened to a few of those and uh, it wasn't immediately that that the idea dawned on me that developer on fire should kind of take the same form as entrepreneur on fire, but uh, that was the inspiration: was hearing, "Hey, this guy is featuring entrepreneurs," and of course, talking about entrepreneurial things, but more getting them to tell stories, share their experiences. And the topic was not some entrepreneurial topic, but it was the entrepreneur themselves. And I said, "You know what? You know, actually, probably about a year and a half later, I decided, you know what? Uh, that's what developers need. That's the thing that's not out there in existing podcasts." And so that was my motivation: that hey, I, I want to talk about developers rather than development. This makes the conversation really meta because Software Engineering Daily was basically started because I was part of Software Engineering Radio and I completely cribbed the name and um, and I stole the format basically. 
because I was like, well, this format's really successful. I think I should just copy it and do it like five times a week. And I, I've been totally shameless and and um, you know open about about how I copied that format and expand kind of expanded on it. And the format has changed over time, certainly. Um, but I think it's interesting that model because I think one of the lessons there is that like the p- podcasting is still a very nascent format and people who want to start podcasts, you really can just like take a format that you like and copy it and expand on it and have a fairly successful format. I mean, developer on fire, developer on fire is a really good spin on, uh, on what entrepreneur on fire was, as opposed to my model of kind of just copying and making it more frequent. Um, have you spoken to the John Lee Dumas? The guy, that's the guy who runs Entrepreneur on Fire. Via email, yes. Hmm. In fact, when I when I decided that I wanted to, and I've mentioned this in a couple places on on Developer on Fire and elsewhere, that yeah, I, I emailed John Lee Dumas about, hey, here's my idea. Yeah. I want to shamelessly rip off your format and uh, apply it to another place. And uh, you know, is is that okay with you? Right? <laughs> do, do, do you do you object to me doing that? And his response was an enthusiastic, you know, booyah. You know, if you've listened to his show, you, you know what his personality is like. And he was exactly in email. The way he is on the show, it was uh, a very enthusiastic. Yes, you have my blessing. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. He's a. I, I like. I like his uh, his show, and he's got some some really good interviews on there. Yeah, I wondered if he was part of an influence for SE Daily as well, because the you know, the, the daily piece of it, right? I mean, his frequency. Oh, yes. is kind of the the element in common there. Oh yes, uh, that was part of it. Uh, that was certainly part of it. I did see, and I also read his he has this post on podcast economics like how much money you can make doing a podcast and i looked at that and um like his numbers were not totally actually you know it's funny because in the long term actually at this point my i think my advertising numbers have kind of asymptoted towards the type of numbers that he wrote about in that blog post but um it took some time to get there I mean the the economics of having a daily podcast with ads um, are are still good and they are actually similar to what he wrote about. So um, yeah, actually I would say he, he was a pretty strong influence there. So that's funny we were both influenced by him. Um, but let's talk more about developer on fire. So the focus on the human element. What are the aspects of the human condition that you find yourself examining most often in these interviews with developers? That's a good question. I might need to think about that a little bit. I think um, a lot of it is team dynamics, right? And uh, learning, uh, obviously with developers, learning is a, is a big piece of the focus. So how do you approach learning and, you know, just uh, some of those experiences that they've had along the way. Uh, mentorship is another thing that has really um, been a big part of that, that, you know, a lot of the stories and developer on fire, really, the, the intent is to tell stories, right? Get, get people to talk about their experience so that, so that we can and I'll take something away from that. And a lot of those stories center on, you know, I had this manager or there was this coworker or the older guy in my first job, the guy that took me under my wing kind of a thing. You know, there's there's a lot of that in a lot of the stories. So, you know, a lot of the kind of, uh, I found my uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi that was going to show me the way of the force, right? And, you know, th- that that was a big piece of the uh, the ongoing story, I guess, is one of the themes that I, that I captured quite a bit. Hmm. Is there a, diff- a strong difference that you notice between the people who say that that mentorship component was important for them and then the people who do not mention mentorship maybe the people who are more self-taught i i, I guess 
I, I don't know that there's any real pattern that I've noticed. I, I think there there is a lot of that. I, and really, I guess they're not really mutually exclusive too, right? A lot of people stumble onto software and teach themselves some of the basics and then get into a job and and then it's it's more of a career mentorship or something along those lines. So um, I, I, I don't know, those, those axes are not necessarily orthogonal. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I guess there's, um, there's probably elements of, of both sides of those in, in everybody's story. Because if you don't have uh, the drive, the self-motivation to teach yourself something and to, uh, to learn on your own, then uh, that's pretty career limiting. And, and you know, it, it limits what you're able to do in software, certainly. What about from a technical perspective? What are the kinds of advice that people talk about when they come on Developer on Fire? Certainly the mentorship thing applies to being a developer and evolving as a developer, but um, that's more broadly applicable to, I think, career. I think anybody in any type of career, whether you're a salesperson or anything, you have to learn. You're, you can't, Mentorship is great, but are there technical pieces of advice that people have said or, or invoked in their stories that uh, you've seen as themes or, or have even just from one person that has stood out? Um, well, there's certainly usually going to be some element of technical, right? I mean, you can't have two developers talking to each other without it uh, uh, winding up on something technical or, or related to technical eventually. So there, there's certainly been a lot of that uh, to varying degrees. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, it probably gets a little bit more technical. Uh, Developer on Fire is very uh, technology stack language agnostic, right? I ha I've had guests from all sorts of, of different backgrounds. Um, so w when when I have guests who are have a little more in common with me as far as, uh, you know, I've been primarily uh, using C Sharp for a majority of my career and .NET. So uh, when, when, I, when, those, when there's an overlap on that technical, I think there, there might be a tendency to get a little more technical. I haven't actually done a, uh, you know, a look at the numbers to, to find out if that's the case, but uh, I, I expect it is, and I feel like you know we've probably talked a little bit more about technology when when we have uh, you know more more common ground. Um, but you know, I guess some of the things uh, you know, a focus on testing and test-driven development, I guess, is one of the things that has emerged as as being something that has been mentioned quite a bit. Um, Really, web technologies too. You know, just um, uh, JavaScript. You know, kind of runs through everything. So, kind of, you know, getting uh, getting some perspectives on uh, different approaches, different frameworks in JavaScript. I guess th those are some of the technical things that have come up a little bit as well. This seems like a good place to shift to a discussion of engineering because you describe yourself as someone who spends your time building distributed systems. I read that on your bio. Um, I love talking about distributed systems, and in a certain light, we are all distributed systems engineers today, because we're all building stuff for the web, and the web is like the biggest distributed system. Uh, well, it is—it's a big distributed system. So, why do you emphasize the distributed systems aspect? Well, I think that is probably the thing that's been most interesting about the the problems that I've tackled in my career. Uh, you know, it, at the risk of starting a holy war, right? I mean, there are a lot of interesting problems in user interface and using you know different uh, web components to make your your web pages come alive, and and different JavaScript frameworks and and all of the things that you can do there. And interesting problems, right? There's so many different things going on when you're dealing with user input, uh, but that's not the thing that has really uh, fired me 
me up over over the course of my career. That's not the not the place where I've derived the most joy. The, the biggest things to me are uh, fault tolerance and that kind of interesting stuff, and uh, using message queuing to be able to uh, to handle some of those situations where you know the thing on the other end isn't available in the moment, and how can I handle uh, taking this request and doing something with it, even even in in the case of uh, the inevitable uh, you know faults that are going to happen in systems systems and uh, downtimes and outages. Uh, you know, the, some of the biggest pains that I've ever had in my career were, uh, you know, it's always related to the the one big monolithic database. And so to me, um, and, and I've, I found an influence at, at kind of the right point in my career, I think, where, um, where I kind of determined that this was something worth thinking about more. Uh, I went to a, a course, uh, Udi Dahan has an advanced distributed systems design course. And I got to uh, go to New York and go to his class that he was giving there. He's, and, he's the uh, guy who created the Mirage OS, right? Uh, no, I, I, I'm not familiar with Mirage OS. He's End uh, Service Bus is the, uh, oh, in the, service the flagship bus. product. In Service of, Bus. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was because I was a. Uh, I I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I because I, I, I remember hearing an episode on Software Engineering Radio that was an interview with him, and I couldn't remember which one it was, um, but it was I think it was the one on event sourcing. Um, which he is, may have talked about event sourcing. He's uh, typically, well, uh, you know, positions change over time and defend, d- depending on how you define event sourcing. He, he was, uh, you know, Greg Young was kind of the, uh, the, the real event sourcing guy. Th- they together are kind of seen as the authorities on uh, command query responsibility segregation, CQRS. And uh, Udi was, it was kind of the dissenting voice on a lot of the uh, event sourcing stuff that has, that has come around. But uh, it, it's, I, I, I do remember him being on SE Radio. I don't remember if that's that's exactly what he was talking about. Yes. So but, so anyway, yeah. I'm sorry I interrupted you. So go ahead. What what was influential about the course that you took from him? So he begins the course with an emphasis on the fallacies of distributed computing and the you know, the the idea that uh, you know the the statements that the network is reliable and <laughs> yeah. that uh, you know latency is negligible and all of those kinds of things that uh, you know if, when you are planning out a system if you don't take into account the fact that that those uh, those assumptions are not true then you run into all sorts of problems later. So his his course is really five days of of breaking down the mentality of of you know seeing that you're going to be able to depend on the the service on the other end of the wire and so it's really a, a big emphasis on planning for the uh, the eventual failure failures that you're going to encounter and that to me is one of the most interesting problems in computing and, and kind of the thing that has uh, that, that in my you know in my former in my former job I, I worked at, at one place for nine years and that was where I kind of you know grew up through the ranks from from being kind of a you know a young programmer into uh, uh, into a senior engineer, and ultimately, I got the title of architect. Which you know, we could probably talk all day about what that means and whether architects are necessary and all that stuff. But uh, you know, having the gamut of experiences there, and and experiencing all of those failures, and and having the the one database that was the bottleneck for everything. Uh, you know, having a, a distributed system where where uh, fault tolerance is 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 uh, you know is, is something that can be achieved, and uh, taking into account the cap theorem and uh, all of, all of that kind of stuff that. Uh, um, you know, is is really interesting and challenging stuff, and so uh, really uh, resilience in, in the face of failure is why I think distributed systems are so interesting. Distributed systems are all about being able to deal with 
anything failing. It's a, it's almost like a bleak perspective on how life is, but it's also kind of comforting because even in this world of totally random failure where anything can fail at any time, you can still build successful systems. Um, and I remember, so my first exposure to distributed systems was in this academic context where uh, I ended up getting a C in this distributed systems class in college. And this was like senior year where I needed to pass it to, to graduate. And I was terrified the entire time because the class was so hard. Not only it was the class itself hard, but it was sort of like introducing you to this idea that life involves random failure and that's like existentially kind of terrifying it was funny because the distributed systems professor rode a motorcycle and i was always like how can you ride a motorcycle if you're a distributed systems professor because like you're if you're riding a motorcycle and you simultaneously are teaching a class on the philosophy that random failures occur i mean riding a motorcycle expose exposes you to a little more risk of the random failures but it was kind of an interesting um life statement I think he made by riding the motorcycle because I think he was just like well you can't get around failure and 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 sometimes you sometimes you get in a motorcycle accident and you get you die maybe but uh there's no getting around it um and so this class was all about proofs and reading papers and it was a really difficult um process but at the end of it finding that we can deal with this world of non-determinism um, I found that somewhat comforting. I, I mean, did you have a similar experience where at first you were like, oh my gosh, this non-determinism is terrifying, and then over time you realize there are ways to deal with it, and that's comforting? Or did you have a different evolution? Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly it, right? I mean, I was probably um, five to eight years, I guess, into my career when I when I finally got to uh, attend that class with Udi, and uh, you know that was uh, you know a half a decade of experiencing failure firsthand, right? You know the 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 effort in futility of trying to make everything reliable so that so that your system would be reliable, right? All of those dependencies, you know, it, it's I, I have to have everything in place, everything's up all the time in order for my system system to be up and just fighting that constant battle of keeping everything up it was really a breath of fresh air to to uh, to to see this perspective where you know what that thing can go down and that's okay right and that that's that was really to me um, you know very eye opening and and really it's it's a philosophy on life as well right you know that i can uh, let something fall apart right i can let one piece of of you know something not everything has to be a success in order for for my long long-term life to be a success. I guess that's one of the things on Developer on Fire, too. One of the stories I really emphasize is that I want to get guests to tell a story of failure because we've all got those in our history, and I think it's really illuminating that uh, that those things can happen, and yet we still have this successful career arc. So, yeah, I think it really is a, a pretty good analogy for life as well. Before getting into computer science, you studied physics, and the field of distributed systems was essentially started by Leslie Lamport, who was deeply influenced by physics. How does your physics background affect how you think about distributed systems and computer science problems? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I'm not completely sure that it does. Not something I've really thought about before. I think um, 
physics was a bit of a default for me when I was in college, right? I, I knew that I loved physics in high school, and that was a big part of why I wanted to go into some sort of engineering-related thing and why I went to Colorado School of Mines. So, you know, a big piece of that was because I had a, a physics teacher in high school who was just dynamite, just an absolutely uh, inspiring person. And he, you know, he, he was the guy that you know, had his computer running for weeks on end doing some calculation and some of those things. And he, you know, everything about him was just learning and uh, philosophy, you know, in addition to just being pure science and, and just a, a neat guy. So because of his inspiration, when I got to college and it was time to pick a major and I didn't really know what I wanted, uh, it, was, it was kind of the default was, well, I'll declare physics for now and then decide what it's going to be later and eventually wound up just completing the, the, the program in physics. Uh, funny that I never realized, well, I mean, I did realize that my favorite thing in all of, you know, by both my physics classes and my electrical engineering minor classes was when I'd control a motor using some C code or something along those lines, right? The, 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 the orbital motion simulations that we do for some of the physics classes that I'd write in QBasic, those, those were a blast. I, I really liked writing software and, you know, the Fortran class was great. And then taking a C++ class, I really enjoyed those things. Um, but, but I guess back to the question, you know, physics, does, does that really, I, I think, um, maybe more than anything, uh, having some, some knowledge of uh, some of the history of physics and some of the, uh, the scientific method and some of those things, I think uh, not necessarily that I'm explicitly applying the scientific method to everything that I do, but, um, but being conversant, I guess, in, in what it means to be a scientist, I, I suppose, does lead me into a bit more of a uh, let's come up with a hypothesis and think about how this thing might work and then construct some, some, some form of test to to verify or to uh, to blow apart that assumption. Now, the real world is increasingly colliding with this world of computer science and you talk about controlling a motor with a piece of computer code. Um, you know, t- the examples we have today are things like self-driving cars and drones and you know, we have this giant range of hardware that falls under the umbrella of the internet of things. Um, so, you know, as this frontier of computer science overlaps with the real world more and more, and the idea of controlling a motor with, um, with some C code seems, um, like trivial compared to the amount of leverage that we're going to have in the very near future when we can write a, you know, quick request to have a drone fly across a state and pick something up and um does it do you think it places a more emphasis on a computer scientist to understand the physical properties of the world like how to translate um how physics translates through computer science into affecting the real world or do you think that the the physical considerations the the physics and the um, mathematics associated there are are just totally going to be abstracted from the average developer. We'll just be making an API call for a drone to you know visit a a physical location, and we won't actually care about the physics because somebody else will be taking care of that for us. 
Well, I, th I think that's exactly it, is that there are different levels of abstraction, right? And uh, in order for that drone to be able to have those APIs where you can just call it and move it and those things, somebody had to do the, the low-level uh, programming to, to turn the motors that are turning the propellers that are keeping that afloat and getting all of that, right? So, yeah, different, different levels. And there, there are computer scientists that are going to have to deal with all of those sorts of things. It becomes a, a bit of a question, right? Do, do, do uh, computer scientists need to know more about the real world. Well, it's really the same, the age-old question in, in software engineering, not necessarily computer science, but software engineering of uh, how deeply do you need to know your domain in order to be an effective programmer in, in creating the systems around that business, that domain, that thing it is that you're doing. Uh, that's where I think Eric Evans really comes in. And um, you know, speaking of, of software engineering radio, right, the, uh, the 10 years after the book episode with Eric Evans, I think was epic and i absolutely you know that that was that was my favorite episode of well I mean, perhaps other than linda rising who is was wonderful anywhere of of se radio um that, that i keep recommending to people listen to that because there's so much wisdom that, that obviously in the book from evans but you know all of the things that he said since then about emphases and some of that stuff uh, but knowing your domain right getting into just what is it that this software is doing uh you know among that would be the the physical you know manifestation of of controlling something uh, in the real world in addition to just being, you know, some web interface. And I say just some web interface like that's trivial, you know, which obviously that's not the case. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, you know, knowing about the domain, the thing it is that you are, the problem that you're trying to solve, I, I think that's critical to uh, going from being a code monkey to a software engineer or, you know, or, or whatever title it is that you want to put on the thing uh, to, to really be an effective uh, problem solver, a collaborator, with your domain experts, well, then you've got to get in there and understand what their world is like. Let, let's shift back to talking about podcasting. Who are the interviewers and the podcasters that you have taken the most cues from, and what have you learned from them? Wow, that's uh, th that's interesting to think about. I, I think I think about those things, but not really explicitly. So um, the first podcast that I ever listened to was .NET Rocks. Uh, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell are... are um, I, I'd say, to me, uh, probably just because of having the early exposure, right? I think Carl was putting audio on the internet before anybody ever thought of the term podcast. And I talked to Carl and Richard at a conference once, and uh, they were kind of talking about, well, is .NET Rocks the oldest podcast in the world, right? The one going the furthest back. And I think there's like one or two others that might have a claim for it, depending on how you define podcast and some of those <laughs> things. But uh, it's it's at least you know able to claim being one of the longest running podcasts ever. Um, so I think uh, really both of those guys are exceptional, both from uh, a standpoint of being uh, software professionals, but also uh, experienced interviewers and uh, really personable and, and good at things. And I've said it in a few places before, I think there are two people in the world that I would count as the most intelligent person I've ever met, uh, you know, that there would be a, a competition between those two. And Richard Campbell is among those because he knows, he mm. knows, he can speak intelligently on any subject. And it's really impressive. Wow. So I, I think those guys are um, certainly influences and, and you know, um, 
a source of why I like podcasting so much. Uh, I guess anybody in the world who listens to podcasts these days has probably come across Tim Ferriss. And uh, I, I love his podcast because he does, it's such a broad range of different disciplines of people that he talks to, but it's really with an emphasis on these are high performers. These are people who are great in their field. And let's try to get in there and figure out, you know, what are some of the things about great people that, uh, that kind of tie them together across many different disciplines. And he, and he, he is, he, he, uh, go ahead. See, he also, what I like about him is he really can step outside of uh, the things that he's t- typically comfortable talking about. Like I, the 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 one where the, I think the interview, the Tim Ferriss interview that impressed me the most was when he interviewed Glenn Beck because he was like, here is somebody who I'm pretty sure I'm going to disagree with on a lot of things. And I think most of the listeners are going to disagree with on a lot of things. But he's somebody who is... Uh, accrued a giant following and he's kind of a weird interesting guy he's got a crazy background and i'm gonna find out what makes him tick and i was like that is just cool that you're you are not afraid of alienating some of your audience yeah, I love that too. And and honestly, that's that's a fear that has um, has paralyzed me. Uh, you know, on having an audience on Developer on Fire is you know I don't want to express controversial opinions because I feel like I'm going to torpedo my audience and some of those things. And uh, it, it's kind of my inspiration for why I have this ambition to create another podcast where I talk philosophy and do talk about some of those things that uh, where I'm going to find disagreement with a lot of people and um, hopefully I can keep those worlds separate because uh, you know I think there's still a lot to be learned from from the lessons of developers and, and some of those things uh, so but yeah I think that that is absolutely a, a great thing about Ferris is that he he really at least seems to be uh, pretty fearless about tackling things and and going deep on on you know the the uh, the, the performance of individuals including the content behind it so can you give us a preview for some of the controversial philosophies that you might expose in the future? Well, I think uh, my opinion uh, in general, uh, philosophically, is uh, maximum liberty. And I think there are a lot of ramifications of that, a lot of things that, uh, you know, um, people might see as being um, biased towards some certain things or, or a lot of those things. I, I don't want to go much deeper than that, but I, I think my, uh, my love of liberty is, uh, is a source of um, some, some consequences that I think uh, would, would land me in some hot water with a lot of people. I love it. Well, I hope the the water will heat up and you'll get your own podcast or get a separate podcast for that at some point. Um, I mean, uh, I, 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 I feel similarly. There are things, I mean, I've done some shows about um, philosophy, like sometimes on, on a Saturday, I'll release a, a monologue episode where I just talk about some philosophies. And, and, uh, and it's funny because those episodes tend to be divisive and it's like some people and i don't run ads on them so that's like i don't know maybe that's something you could do on developer on fire um is you know on on an off day just be like hey today is a monologue day and i'm going to talk about some stuff that you may find completely crazy um but anyway i mean it's i think as many people as it's actually it may have alienated a very small subset of the audience but the people who like those episodes um they get gets a stronger allegiance from them i think um, I, I think that makes sense there's there's probably a lot of truth to that but okay so talking more about the 
the podcasters you've learned from it. And I think learning from yourself too. So like, I mean, one thing I love about podcasting is it forces me to scrutinize my own communication patterns. Like I think I've already interrupted you twice. And when I look at myself under a microscope in these communication scenarios, which I have to do because I listen back to these episodes, um, it's off, I'm often like horrified with how I am interacting. And I'm just like, why, who would want to interact with somebody like this? And, and, but I think I've ironed out a lot of some of the horrible problems, the, the earlier problems with my communication over the episodes that I've done. I'm curious if you have a similar situation because you do so many episodes. What are the aspects of interpersonal communication that you have improved as a podcaster? Well, there's no question. I, I mean, l- listening to some of my early episodes compared to some of the more recent ones, it, it's night and day as far as what kind of host I am and, and how uh, well I do the job of being a podcast host. Uh, and a part of that is my interpersonal communication skills. I think that that has grown quite a bit. I, you know, I never even realized before I started doing the podcast and listening back to myself that I have a bit of a stutter, right? You know, I sometimes do kind of an I, 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 I kind of kind of a thing. And I, I didn't even I never even noticed that for all of my life until I started listening to it. I'm like, oh my gosh, who is that guy, right? Um, and I think I've gotten better at that, but it hasn't gone away. But it, it is a lot less. I use less ums and uhs than I used to, uh, but that hasn't gone away either. And I haven't really made a conscious effort to try to change those things. I think probably the biggest change in me is confidence, right? I mean, I feel now, uh, I've, I've told many times in the context of Developer on Fire and other things that uh, my, my story for a majority of my life was that I'm good at machines, but I'm not good at humans. And uh, that's held me back in a lot of ways. And Developer on Fire, I think one of the big lessons that I've taken away is that that's not true. It's simply not true. I am capable of having a great conversation with another human being, connecting with them, uh, having some empathy toward what it is that they're feeling and getting into their story and really uh, feeling that thing. And I think that, you know, that varies obviously with, with the storyteller and how well they are able to convey the thing. But, uh, yeah, I think, um, I've really just not only become a more, uh, a more empathetic human being, but I've realized that I am that. And uh, I think confidence, uh, much like I, I, everybody that uh, is going to have a second child that they ask me for any advice or anything like that, uh, you know, going into, you know, I've been through this experience once, but now another time. Well, I tell them that, you know what, the second time is so much easier because there's just such a sense of ease. There's such a sense of that, hey, I've been here. The, the first time you have a baby, uh, you know, it's, it is a stressful nightmare. It is, a, you know, it's really every little, uh, you know, every little gurgle and, and choke, you, you're, you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is the end, right? I've, I've totally messed up and I, my, my child is about to uh, have some horrible fate befall them because of the terribleness of my early parenting efforts. Uh, the second time it's, you know what, I've done this before, no big deal. And I think that uh, that confidence, right, is, is really in a lot of ways the difference in doing something well and not doing it well. Uh, say, you know, same lesson goes in basketball, right? And when, when I play basketball and I'm not playing well, well, that, that just compounds itself because I start feeling like, well, hey, maybe I'm, I'm not that good when I start hesitating to take shots that I normally would take. Well, that, that's, uh, that's an indication that I'm not playing at my best and I'm not feeling that I'm very smart. So, uh, or not, not necessarily smart, but uh, you know, that, that I'm not necessarily uh, the, the best person to be taking this opportunity. So confidence goes a long way. And I think that's probably the biggest uh, difference in me as a podcast host is that now, you know, when I have uh, somebody on and, you know, speaking to big name 
developers, right? Celebrities in the field, you know, the, the Uncle Bobs, the Ward Cunninghams, the DHHs, having those guys on the show, it's, uh, it, it's, it's much more comfortable to me. And I feel like I can talk to these people and that, you know, I'm, I'm one of them, which I think is, is something that um, it, it's, it, it's remarkable and it's so completely not the person that I used to be. And uh, so I think uh, that's probably the biggest piece of how my, my patterns have changed. And I guess I'm forgetting a little bit exactly how the question was phrased, but <laughs> the communication patterns and, you know, how I deal with people, um, you know, and, and the confidence to ask these people, right? That, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I asked DHH, for an interview out of the blue, not knowing, not knowing him, you know, all of these things that, that uh, being able to reach out and ask somebody, here's what I would like from you. Are you willing to do it? And, and facing the, the potential of, you know, uh, George McFly, right? I just don't think I could take that kind of rejection, right? What if they say no? Uh, but, but, you know, changing that perspective and not being that timid George McFly anymore, being the, the confident one that actually punched out Biff and, and now has the life of his dreams, right? Uh, that's, that's a huge shift in the the way that I deal with the world. Podcasting, at least in 2017, is such an awesome hack for anybody who's looking for a way to access a better version of themselves. Because it forces you to, to undergo this self-reflection. I think it's in this process of like listening back to the episodes you've done um, whether you're editing or you're, um, uh, or, or you're actually just listening back to a finished episode, just doing that over and over and over again and, and reflecting on, um, both how you pers- you know, it's like, it's, it's almost like going back in time and, um, it's like that movie, it's a wonderful life, you know, where you're like stepping outside of the situation and you're observing it as a third person and it makes you reflect on oh here is how things look from the third person and oh um i have all these problems but oh i'm improving over time and that's you know there's something to that and the caliber of people that are willing to interact with me um is going up in terms of like the the public status of those people and and it's like that's it's cool it's cool to see that measurable progress so there's all these interesting and positive aspects of of podcasting that are are pretty cool um, Absolutely. You know, there, there's one thing, too, that related to that is that a, a lot of the potential guests that I've reached out to saying, hey, do you want to be on the show? A lot of them have responded with, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, you've had Udi Dahan on your show. Right? You've had, uh, you know, you've had these huge names in the field and I'm not worthy. Right. I'm not of the caliber of these kinds of people. And, uh, you know, and some people are starting to see me in that light, too. Right. That, that almost like that I'm something uh, something beyond their level. And that's, uh, it's, I don't know, it's a lot of different mixed feelings that I have about that because it's, um, it's at the same time that I'm like, no way, right? That doesn't make any sense. I I am one of you. It's also kind of rewarding to think that, you know what, uh, there is something different about me in that I decided that I wanted to do this podcast thing and I took action and I did it. And, uh, you know, I was, I was featured on, uh, John Sanmez's, uh, YouTube channel and podcast, the simple programmer, uh, you know, YouTube and, and podcast. I'm not sure whether to call that a podcast since it's also a video channel, but, uh, that's another, another topic. But, uh, you know, I was on there just talking about taking action and what has resulted from, uh, from doing developer on fire. And so, you know, that was, uh, that was one of the things that he, that he really emphasizes is that there aren't that many people out there who just, you know, decide to go for it. 
Well, it's and it's deterministic. Um, for, for if we're if you're lucky enough to be in a scenario where you can spend your time like listening to podcasts and and you're uh, you know you're a software developer, perhaps you live in America, you have all the right mix of things to deterministically turn your life into uh, what you want it to be, which is um, a very lucky scenario to be in. And and um, and I think you know developer on fire is probably channeled where more and more people can can realize that and realize that um the potential um yeah definitely so uh, you know i have discussions with people about why listeners tune into podcasts and some people think that it's to learn um some people think it's to feel less alone um, I think there are all these fears about, or not fears. I think there are all these theories about why people, because people who listen, it's often like if you listen to podcasts, you listen to a ton of podcasts. People who are into, into podcasts are like voracious consumers of podcasts. Why is that? What are the main reasons that people are listening to podcasts? So I listened to the episode of uh, Software Engineering Daily where you were the guest and you were talking about that topic. And I yeah. think there's, uh, you've done some some real research on this. And I think that idea of uh, feeling less alone is pr- there's probably a lot to that. Uh, I, I can speak for myself, uh, you know, obviously for my motivations. Speaking generally about the broad public is largely conjecture, though I'm I'm not afraid to conjecture. So I, I would say for myself, I love the audio medium because it goes with you everywhere and it's not demanding of your full attention so I can do it while I'm doing something else and uh, multitasking is something that is mostly a myth in most of your life Uh, but the ability to consume content while I'm walking home from having walked my kids to school or you know being able to to listen to you know a podcast while I'm driving or you know any of these other low attention tasks now I can't listen to podcasts while I'm trying to write software there's the those things are not compatible. If if I pay attention to one, I'm not paying attention to the other. But so, some some other things that require less of your full attention, and I don't want to say that driving doesn't require your full attention because it does, but there's something about the type of attention required that you can still uh, have your mind uh, you know, listening to this other thing. It's, it's why you know listening to the radio in the car works. And that was kind of the uh, something that I really liked doing before listening to podcasts. Uh, but uh, podcasts are a huge improvement over radio because you don't start in the middle of the show and miss half of the thing. You don't have to, well, I guess in varying degrees, there's a lot less advertising that you have to, to deal with in, uh, you know, when you're dealing with podcasts versus, versus AM radio. Um, you know, I started listening to AM radio with sports, and I, I, I didn't do that. And then I started turning more into some of the politics and news and some of those things. Uh, but podcasting, right, it's so targeted, right? There's not uh, the, the it, I mean, if you want to listen to talk radio, that you you have very limited options and you don't get to listen to the show in its entirety. Right? With a podcast, I can listen to it as long as I am you know not needing my attention or my hearing for something else, which is remarkable. And then as soon as I get to the end of of that and I need to do something else, well, I just stop it where it is. And then the next time I have I, I have some freedom to be able to consume that content, then it just continues from there. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing, right? The subscription model is absolutely perfect for for the type of 
of content that I like to consume, it also gives me the ability to, you know, I can listen to software podcasts. I can listen to philosophy podcasts. I can listen to health and wellness and self-optimization, productivity, uh, you know, all sorts of things that really spin my gears. So me as a podcast consumer, I just love the ability to multitask consuming content with something else. And uh, in, in addition, um, the hearing someone's voice, I think, is a level of intimacy that goes beyond text. And I think that that's, that's really one of the big draws, one of the big reasons that, uh, you know, people start to really become fans of podcast hosts and why, uh, you know, I've had people ask me to take a picture with them and some of those things, right? Because you really feel like you know somebody when they're in your ear uh, as, as much as, as we podcasters are for, for our listeners. So I, I think the, the intimacy of, of really a human connection, I think, is related to that thing about not feeling so alone. Um, so, you know, th- th- those are some of the things that I think are really appealing about the medium of audio. Completely agree. I've heard that term described as asymmetric intimacy because the listener oh, yeah. feels like they know the podcaster, but the podcaster, we don't have intimate understanding um, of who you are. So, but I mean, I'm sure you get emails from people that are like, hey, this podcast has been super important to me. And then it becomes more of a symmetric, symmetrically intimate um, yeah, you know, there's also that uh, I, I think you have a, a Slack group around the, the podcast, and I have a Facebook group for for that as well. And I think that's a, a neat chance for people to go and to interact a little bit and to close that gap a little bit, right? I mean, there's still still going to be a big difference in the a big asymmetry in in the nature of the relationship there. But I think that's one chance for interaction. And I, I think comments on show notes pages too is something that is way underused, uh, and I think a lot more people should be engaged that way. In fact, that was, that was one of the ways that I really started on the thing. I've, I've told the story, you know, I've, that, that reference to me being on Simple Programmer with John Sanmez, um, I, I told the story there about how uh, John's package, How to Market Yourself as a Software Developer, was something that I bought. And uh, Pinal Dave, who is the blogger at sqlauthority.com, which is millions of page views you know, every month, and he, he blogs daily. Uh, Pinal basically issued a challenge in there that said, if you're serious about blogging, come and comment on my blog every day for seven days. And he's only had a handful of takers on that challenge. And so I, I think that's one of the things there, right, that uh, getting engaged in, in the community, in, in some of these things that are going on, is a huge way to move yourself forward. And it was my taking Pinal's challenge that, uh, in, in commenting on his blog, commenting on John Sanmez's blog, and commenting on the .NET Rocks uh, show notes pages, that really catapulted me into thinking, I've got something to offer, uh, you know, that my comments on these blogs are, are rewarding and worth worth my time and worth my effort. And well, I can take that the next step and, and do some blog writing. And ultimately, that led into podcasting. So I think that's a, re- a relevant piece, too, is that, uh, yes, there is an asymmetric relationship in, in this podcast thing. Uh, but there are some ways to close that gap a little bit, too, and get engaged. You've written in detail about the idea of fear. Why are you interested in the topic of fear? Well, I, I think it's something that has held me back uh, significantly. I think um, for years, right, a majority of my software career, I've gone to user group meetings, sat in the back of the room, and thought, I could give a presentation on this topic. It would be pretty good. It might be better than the one that the people are seeing here, right? I've got something to offer. And then, and the when did that of, change? When did you, when did you, when, what was the inflection point of where you stopped being scared? Well, I, I don't think 
hmm, when did I stop being scared? Uh, probably 20 or 30 episodes into the podcast is when I stopped <laughs> being scared about it. Um, when I made the inflection that despite being scared, I'm going to go ahead and engage and see what happens. That was, that was really inspired by John Tonmez's how to market yourself as a software developer package. As I mentioned, especially the Pinal Dave interview in there. So, uh, you know, and that's a, uh, you know, it's a few hundred dollars for, for that package, well worth it. And so, you know, um, uh, so you know, that, that's something that I would direct people to that when, when, when asked about, you know, something really important for this. So, but yeah, fear, I was, I, I felt like I had something to offer. I felt like I was exceptional in some way and that getting engaged would benefit myself and the community, but I didn't do it. And that was largely because I think the fear is not only the fear of, of making yourself look like a fool, right? And, and that's certainly present. Uh, but the, the thought in my mind that I do have something to offer, well, if I put the effort into sharing that and I find out that it's not actually valuable for other people, well, I don't know if I could take that kind of rejection, right? That I think that's the, the, the real fear, right? Going back to George McFly, that, uh, that my best is not good enough. And I, I think asking that question, right? Here is the thing that I've really put my effort into. I've really given this my all to try to make it something valuable for you. And then to find out that it's not there, uh, that's, that's the thing that really uh, causes me fear. Um, but at the same time, I mean, ultimately, I think we, we have to get over that because if you don't find out, you're never going to know, right? If you don't actually take the shot, you, you just don't know. So I think for a lot of us, having a nine to five job, you know, going and writing software and going home, have a beer, watch the game, uh, you know, that kind of a lifestyle, that's good enough, right? That's, that's exactly what a lot of us want and, and, and more power to you if that's what you want. It's not what I wanted. I wanted to be engaged. I wanted to be sharing. I wanted to, to find out if I really had something to offer that was worth listening to. And, uh, if you do have that desire and you are not going for it because of fear, well, I think you're missing out on a, a big part of the experience of life. And that's, that's how I've lived a majority of my life. And now that I'm seeing the other side of that and the rewards of, of putting something out there and, and really uh, trying to go for it, I think um, it's, it's incomparable, uh, the quality of life that, that you get from that. Yeah, my favorite book about fear is The Icarus Deception, which is a book by Seth Godin. And the the core focus of that book is this idea that many many of us particularly those who are lucky enough to live in the United States or some other part of the developed world and we have access to a computer and all of the trappings that come with that uh, source of infinite information we're we're scared of flying too close to the sun like none of us and that's what the re reference to Icarus who flew too close to the sun when in reality, the greater risk is that we might end up doing too little and flying too close to the ocean. So that's the deception is we think that how dare we be so ambitious as to think that we could aspire to something greater than to come home and drink a beer and watch the game and forget about those ideas about side projects or starting a podcast or whatever. Like, how dare we think about that? We're, you know, we, sh we should be, um, we should not fly closer to the sun. But in reality, the greater problem is that too many people just fly too close to the ocean and um, we don't make 
progress as humanity as fast as we would otherwise. Why is it so? Why why is it that so many of us have this fear regulation part of our brain that is wired to be irrationally afraid rather than to err on the side of boldness? That's a good question. I have some thoughts on that. Before I get into that, I just want to say that you know I've read blog posts by Seth Godin, but never that book or really any, any book that he's written. And I, I, that's absolutely beautiful, right? The the allusion to to mythology there uh, really illustrates the illustrates the point really well, and I'm impressed by that. that that's that's really cool. Uh, I think um, I'd say it's probably evolutionary, right? I think throughout much of early human history and really human history itself, through the majority of human history, um, we're 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 a tribal. Uh, kind of a creature, right? We, uh, your survival depended on being a part of your tribe. And the rejection of the tribe really called into question your ability to survive. So this, uh, this putting yourself out there in front of people, offering something, and uh, ultimately, um, you know, facing the, the fact that you could be rejected with your best effort, well, that calls into something very primal in us, a, a very, uh, not only a fear of, of just the embarrassment of that, but that, uh, you know, in, in, our, in our biology, it feels like a, a potential for, uh, you know, calling your survival into question. So uh, even though it's in, in today's age, that's not really applicable, and that's, that's not the reality that we face, uh, I think that's still a, a large part of the hardwired programming that we have um, that, that is probably inescapable, just an, an evolutionary artifact of our past. So I think uh, that's probably a big part of why we tend to do that. In addition, you know, I think about um, the way that we raise our children and the way that, uh, you know, we interact with society. When I left a, a job at a, at a behemoth a telecom company to go work for a much smaller company, I mean, you know, my dad, who worked at the, in the same job for, for 40 years, um, he, he just looked at me and he was like, well, why would you do that, right? Why would you give up that stability? And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's societal as well, right? The, the idea that you, you shouldn't take chances, you shouldn't rock the boat, I think is, is something that um, it, it keeps us safe, right? And uh, evolution favors safe in a lot of ways. So I, I think, you know, it, it really kind of comes back to that evolutionary trend that, uh, you know, we, we are... We are programmed towards safety, um, even though the, uh, the, the, the rewards are so much greater by, by taking some risk. And if you, if you, don't, if you don't take some risk, you're, you're, uh, you're really cutting yourself off from some of the great rewards that life has to offer. Yeah, and I think that the way to overcome that fear, for me at least, has been working on these side projects and then you know, things like software engineering daily and and really taking them seriously and i think that is you know i think there are a lot of people listening who probably have these things side projects and even even the 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 name side project oh this is just a thing on the side um i think people could benefit by taking their own side projects more seriously and approaching them with conviction that they'll work out um eventually and i think that's um that's something I hear kind of reflected in some of the things you're saying, as particularly about developer on fire and your consistency of, of approach to it. And even though it took you 30 episodes to kind of have that that uh, fear inflection, um, you kept at it. So, 
Yeah, yeah, you know, you both you and Jonathan Cottrell from Developer T, I've heard both of you guys say that when you started the podcast, you just treated it like a business from the get-go. Yeah. That that was that was the emphasis, and that was not what I did, right? I mean, I, a developer on fire for me was much more of a side project, much more of a, well, I'm going to try this audio thing and see how it goes, and, and we'll see where it goes. So, uh, you know, I didn't take a very, uh, well, not necessarily that it wasn't a serious approach, because it was something that really was important to me. Um, and maybe, maybe that's a part of why it has caught on is that, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it was just a side project, but it wasn't just a side project. If, if that makes any sense, right. That, that doesn't, doesn't sound very sensical, but, um, there was, uh, I think I did take it very seriously and it mattered to me. And, and especially, you know, I mean, early on, I just did some interviews and I wanted to have a few in the bucket before, before I published any of them. But then after I made the feed public and it was out there, uh, I wanted to stick to a schedule. And so I, you know, I made it a commitment that I was going to, uh, at, at, in the beginning, it was two a week, uh, ultimately went up to three a week. And then w- when the tweets started coming in saying, hey, I can't listen to all these, I, I took it back down to two a week. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I think that I did have a commitment to it, even though I didn't have that same approach that, uh, that you and Jonathan did. So let's begin to wrap up. Where, where are you going to take the developer on Fire platform? Are you focused on the podcast and improving that or would you like to evolve it significantly beyond that? I think I do have ambitions to want to do more. So when I started Developer on Fire, I was blogging on a different domain, and I've really just recently uh, kind of merged those together. So now my blog is on Developer on Fire as well, um, and I, I'd like to, I, I think, eventually turn that into uh, a, a community, right? Get some guest bloggers and some of those things. So I do want to grow Developer on Fire as a as a, as a source of content in, in various forms, and uh, just, you know, making it a valuable resource for the community. I, I think of John Sanmez with Simple Programmer, right? The, the thing that he's done and turn that into a place where, where you know, there, there's so much there about uh, both technical and non-technical, right? The soft skills, uh, life, uh, you know, life instruction, all of those kinds of things. I, I'd like for Developer on Fire to become something along those lines, right? I mean, uh, with, with some obvious divergence from that, uh, the podcast, I think, is still uh, going to be for the foreseeable future and, and you know, f- probably even beyond foreseeable it's going to be the centerpiece of what Developer on Fire is all about. I mean, it, it is the genesis and it is kind of the bedrock of, of what Developer on Fire is. But but yeah, I'd, I'd like to do more with Developer on Fire. Very cool. Well, um, Dave, it's been great talking to you. I am a fan of Developer on Fire. I think it's an awesome podcast and um, I learn a lot from it. Um, I, I, you know, just thinking about what aspects of the human condition of the developer um, I, sh- I should bleed into discussing on Software Engineering Daily. Like, I know I noticed that um, when I'm listening to Developer on Fire, I'm consistently entertained. And sometimes when I'm listening to soft- my own podcast, Software Engineering Daily, there will be episodes where I'm like, okay, this is really useful information, and uh, it's too informative. It's like I'm in class or something. And um, so anyway, I think there's, there's some trade-off to be made there between um, how entertaining and how human... Uh, a show is versus um, how 
it's just raw information. It makes it easier to digest, and uh, I think that's something I've really learned from you. So, so thanks. Well, I think every show has its own aspects, right? Just like you, you can't be an expert in every programming language, right? You can't uh, have any one podcast that's going to cover all, the whole gamut. And I think it's great that we can have these different shows that have different emphases. Great. Okay. Well, well, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily, Dave. Absolutely, Jeff. Thank you very much. 